welcome. <coughs> Excuse me. Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or one of our loved radio syndicate partners on the Green Majority podcast. I am David Franklin Irwin Hostetter with Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter and Lauren Elizabeth Corlator. After this brief first news segment, uh, Stefan has two interviews, one with uh, Green Majority correspondent uh, Adiat Janaid about the environmental legacy of the late Congressman John Lewis from the States. And then Stefan will be interviewing David Miller, the former um, Toronto mayor, about how cities can fix climate change. Are fixing now. Are already fixing climate change. Yeah. Excellent. All right. uh, And so beginning, over 4 million acres have now burned in California, and the fires are still growing with 2020 so far seeing more land burned by wildfires in California than in the past three years combined. The Amazon rainforest is still going through the world's, uh, sorry, going through the worst fires it's seen in a decade. Uh, And wildfires are also ripping through Paraguay during a drought and record high temperatures. And Argentina is also in the grips of record-breaking fires. And here in Canada... Mr. Justin Trudeau has announced, uh, or did announce at the beginning of the month, that the Canadian Infrastructure Bank would be investing $10 billion in major infrastructure projects to create jobs and economic growth. They will invest $2.5 billion in clean power generation uh, and transmission and storage, $1.5 billion in irrigation, $2 billion in high-speed internet, $1.5 billion in zero-emissions school and transit buses uh, to create 5,000 of them over the next five years. That will, of course, include some charging infrastructure. And $2 billion for energy-efficient building retrofits. It is a three-year plan that they say will create 60,000 jobs across the country. The Canadian Infrastructure Bank was started in 2017 to invest $35 billion over 10 years But it has not invested that much so far, and uh, both the Conservatives and the NDP have said they would get rid of the bank. So, if I jump back to the weather very briefly, the other one last piece of fun news, of course, is the Hurricane Delta, because they ran out of regular letters and had to move to Greek letters for only the second time in uh, in human history. Yeah, we've gone Greek already. Yeah, uh, is j- made landfall in Mexico uh, today as a Category Two tropical storm and might get worse as it moves towards uh, the states. Mm. So you know, just one last weather fact before we jump into this juicy topic of infrastructure spending. But the the good news, at least from the infrastructure spending, is that this is the first announcement I would say that comes in some ways out of the throne speech, and it is not no money. You know, ten billion dollars is a significant sum of money. It's not the hundred billion dollars that was sort of loosely mentioned before the throne speech as maybe being tied towards green uh, green work. And but of course, this is not the only thing, and it certainly is a as a good sign. Uh, but to you, Lauren. Yeah. Um, uh talking specifically to the throne speech or not the throne speech the um this 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 announcement of 10 billion dollars for infrastructure funding um there's definitely like 
not a ton of information available on it, so we can't pass too much judgment. But on the surface, it seems like a really, really welcome announcement. Uh, to break it down, it was like $2.5 billion for clean power generation and storage and transportation, $2 billion um, to get broadband to homes and businesses in remote areas, which is like really, really desperately needed, especially when so many people are trying to learn and work from home, um, $2 billion in large-scale retrofits, $1.5 in agricultural irrigation, and another $1.5 billion um, for adoption of uh, zero emissions buses and charging stations. So on the surface, some good stuff. Um, that being said, I, ha I have heard some criticisms, specifically as it pertains to the agriculture announcement, which is something that I personally have no expertise on, but a, co a colleague was letting me know that um, this could potentially not be a great announcement because a lot of low greenhouse gas emission uh, and intensive agriculture calls for like super efficient, really highly specialized irrigation um, that really caters to a, to a specific farm's wants and needs um, and production requirements. And um, all farms for lower greenhouse gas emission or emitting practices uh, require better on-farm water management. And one of the things they're worried about with this announcement of a larger infrastructure irrigation project is that... Um, it could signal major waterway um, redistribution and rerouting and diversion, um, which not only is troubling from a standpoint that we don't like our waterways messed with, but also is potentially troubling because it's not actually the solution that is required from the agricultural industry. So again, that's that's not my expertise. That's something a, a, a colleague who is experienced in, in agriculture has let me know. Um, so, so we'll see how this ends up playing out. Um, also did hear some criticism around the fact that this $10 billion is technically part of the $35 billion that was announced back in 2017 when this infrastructure bank was opened. So um, I guess it, it could be kind of viewed in a way that this isn't actually a new injection of money. It's just an allocation of already um, pledged dollars, if that makes sense. That being said, the fact that um, nearly a third of those pledged dollars are going specifically towards quote unquote green stimulus is, is in itself a positive thing. So um, I guess it's kind of, it's all in how you look at it. Yeah, for sure. And you know, in the, these 60,000 jobs obviously would be one, only a drop in the bucket to the million jobs that has been promised by the Trudeau government to be created. And so m much more spending would be required to sort of see where this other stuff goes. I'd also be interested sort of in, in the concept of, you know, $2 billion is not a lot of money for an energy retrofits. Like it's a significant amount of money, but there is so much retrofitting you can do, especially given how much retrofitting can even pay it for itself. And so like, I would love to see some more money coming in towards that, or even just, you know, even just interest-free loans that they could then be received later. You know, like there's so many ways you could actually make interesting policy for retrofits that, that I hope that's, this is not the only note notes we have here. But one thing that does stand out to me is that in the interview we'll hear at the end of the show with David Miller, he talks specifically about how he would like to see the federal government taking more ownership of these bus fleets uh, in regards to getting them to go to electric uh, because he sees an opportunity there to not only, uh, you know, the value of buses within within our systems, especially in smaller places that don't have the ability to have electric rail and stuff like that, but also the fact that you can... It, you know that Canada, if Canada wants to be a place that has a you know a clean economy, one thing that might that probably should be a part of that should be the ability to make you know these buses and these larger transportations in zero emission ways. 
And so it is interesting to see that that here, given the the interview that we'll hear at the end of the show. Yeah, and I guess the other hope with with that injection of cash for zero emissions buses is that hopefully this means that new um like any like procurement of new buses, especially energy efficient ones, theoretically won't be coming out of the sort of municipal coffers if it's instead funded by federal dollars. So that means that theoretically municipalities won't have as much of an excuse to jack up transit prices um, because that's something that that I know at least plagues the city I live in. Um, in, in Ottawa, our transit prices are slated to go up something like 2.5% every year for the next decade or something like that, which would eventually result in something insane, like a pardon, sorry, pardon the ableist language, which is not okay. Cause it would result in something like a $17 round trip price to take the bus in Ottawa, which. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, obviously. Um, yeah. And, and Toronto has a similar problem. Uh, but let's, uh, let's move on to the Pope. Yes. The Pope. So Mr. Pope Francis. Mr. Pope Francis? That's the, that's the title, right? That's the title, yeah, for sure. Okay. He's Mr. Pope. Yeah. Named himself after uh, Francis of Assisi, who was, uh, you know, talked to animals and stuff, who was all about the earth. Yeah. Uh, put out that famous Laudato Si uh, environmental en- encyclical. Yeah. When was that? Uh, I mean, the one that declared climate change a sin? Yeah. Several years ago. Yeah. And now he set out one um, uh, with a name of oh, the Latin I'm forgetting. But I'm going to quote from it now because uh, it, it has a nice um, social solidarity ring. So he writes in a paragraph uh, right after he, when he talks about uh, how neoliberalism sucks. He writes, quote, In some closed and monochrome economic approaches, there seems to be no place for popular movements that unite the unemployed, temporary, and informal workers and many others who do not easily find a place in existing structures. Yet those movements manage various forms of popular economy and of community production. What is needed is a model of social, political, and economic participation that can include popular movements and invigorate local, national, and international governing structures with that torrent of moral energy that springs from including the excluded in the building of a common destiny, while also ensuring that these experiences of solidarity which grow up from below, from the subsoil of the planet, can come together, be more coordinated, keep on meeting one another. This, however, must happen in a way that will not betray their distinctive way of acting as sowers of change, promoters of a process involving millions of actions, great and small, creatively intertwined like words in a poem. In that sense, such movements are social poets that, in their own way, work, propose, promote, and liberate. They help make possible an integral human development that goes beyond the idea of social policies being a policy for the poor, but never with the poor, and and never of the poor, much less part of a project that reunites peoples. They may be troublesome, and certain theorists may find it hard to classify them, yet we must find the courage to acknowledge that without them, democracy atrophies, turns into a mere word, a formality. It loses its representative character and becomes disembodied, since it leaves out the people in their daily struggle for dignity in the building of their future. Who do you think is going to break it to conservatives that the Pope is Antifa? Yeah, the Pope's Antifa. <laughs> and you know, I mean, like, I'm down for the Pope being Antifa. 
uh, being Antifa, I'm down for like his great silk dresses and stuff like that. But until he comes around on his anti-choice rhetoric, I'm still a little bit dubious of all of these calls for social justice. So that's very fair. But like I said, I'll take the silk dresses. He looks fabulous <laughs> all the time. My philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, yeah. not just, yeah. say something, yeah. do something, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. That was the unmistakable voice of John Lewis, the late great United States civil rights icon and politician. John Lewis was known as one of the big six leaders of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. He continued the struggle for people's rights as a politician, first winning a seat on the Atlantic City Council in 1981, and then serving in the U.S. House of Representatives for Georgia's fifth congressional district from 1987 until his death from pancreatic cancer on July 17th of this year. Congress Lewis, Congressman Lewis's history as a civil rights activist is a legend, is legendary. Less well known is his activism and advocacy on environmental issues. Uh, and Green Majority contributor Adia Junaid has been looking into this. Welcome, Adia. Thank you, Stefan. I'm delighted to be here. So good to have you on the show after so much discussion. Yes, I'm thrilled. So before we get into John Lewis's environmental legacy, let's Sort of a little bigger picture. Tell us some more about uh, John Lewis and why he's considered such an icon. Stefan, people sometimes throw around the term icon or legend loosely, but John Robert Lewis, I kind of like saying his name. <laughs> he, was, he was born on February 21st, 1940, just outside the county of Troy, uh, Alabama. Um, he grew up to embody these terms and then some. John had a, a loving, supportive family, but he grew up in the era of racial segregation in the United States, known as Jim Crow. That was the system where a collection of state laws and statutes legalized segregation along racial lines. And these laws existed for about 100 years, um, from the, the post-Civil War era until 1968. These Jim Crow laws mandated the systematic marginalization of African-American people by denying them the right to vote, hold jobs, get an education, and other opportunities. And this state-sanctioned system of racist laws were maintained not only through the courts and legislatures, but also through horrific brutality and violence. John Lewis's parents were farmers and sharecroppers. Sharecropping is the, the system where farmers have an arrangement with a landowner to farm agricultural land in exchange for a, a share of the crops. In the U.S., sharecropping was extremely hard, back-breaking, low-wage work. And, and John Lewis did his share of this work. He's from a large family, and all the kids had to pitch in. Another part of his responsibilities on the farm was taking care of the chickens. And stories about these chickens are part of the John Lewis lore that would be shared through the years. You see, as a boy, Lewis heard preachers on the radio and aspired to become one of them. And he would preach to his siblings and to his chickens. In fact, his brothers and sisters would call him preacher. His desire to become a preacher was instrumental in his involvement in the civil rights movement. 
That's so interesting. That that feels like such a, a similar trajectory in some ways. Yeah, you know, to to Martin Luther King and and to others. So growing up in that era obviously had to impact him. Uh, so how did growing up in that Jim Crow era, you know, affect Lewis and lead to his activism? Well, Stephen, let's hear about this directly from John Lewis. This is a clip from a lecture that he gave in Oakland, California, on April 21st, 2012. When we visit Montgomery, visit Tuskegee, visit Birmingham, I saw those signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. As a young child, I tasted the bitter fruits of segregation and racial discrimination, and I didn't like it. I asked my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, why segregation, why racial discrimination? And they would say, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way, don't get in trouble. But one day in 1955, at the age of 15, in the 10th grade, I heard about Rosa Parks. I heard Dr. King speaking on old radio. The leadership of Dr. King, his words, the action of Rosa Parks inspired me to find a way to get in the way. I got in trouble. It was good trouble. It was necessary trouble. Barbara Lee, Mayor Harris, been getting in trouble. I have the feeling that here, Today, we're too quiet. We're too quiet. We need to make some noise. We need to find a way to get in the way. We need to find a way to get in good trouble, necessary trouble, if we're going to save America. What he says after, just after that clip, is refers to the beloved community. And the, so he's saying, if we're going to save America, and the beloved community. And the beloved community was uh, Dr. King's vision of a world where there would be no more discrimination, no poverty, no war. Lewis adopted this philosophy and lived it his whole life. He certainly was an incredible speaker. Yes, he was. And yet speaking didn't come to him naturally. And it took a lot out of him. You wouldn't know it because he was so elegant, so powerful, but he had a worthy cause and that gave him voice. Yeah, and it's funny, he keeps you know, coming back into this, into this good trouble uh, and he seems to have gotten into plenty of it. He certainly did. Lewis meets Dr. King and other civil rights leaders when he was around 17 and uh, he, leaves his, he leaves Troy and uh, goes to Alabama to attend the American Theological Seminary in Nashville. So he's kind of upgraded from the chickens. <laughs> and there he learns about nonviolent protests, and he helped to organize sit-ins at segregated lunch counters. He starts participating in the Freedom Rides of 1961. And in 1963, still in his early 20s, he became chairman of the famous Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the SNCC, which trained a lot of young people to withstand um, the harassment and, and brutality that they would 
face when they were sitting at lunch counters, for example. He also became one of the organizers of the March on Washington that year. He was the youngest organizer and speaker for the event. Here Lewis describes his this is it moment during the speech. We started organizing. We were able to bring more than 250,000 people to March on Washington. And we all had to prepare a speech. I was very young, 23 years old, did all of my hair and a few pounds lighter. I have the pleasure to present to this. When A. Philip Randolph said, I now present to you young John Lewis, the national chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Brother John Lewis. I looked to my right. I saw hundreds and hundreds of young people who had been involved during the early days. Look straight ahead. I saw this sea of humanity. Then I looked to the left. I saw young black men and young white men up in the trees trying to get a better view. And then I said to myself, well, this is it. And I looked straight ahead again. And something said to me, go for it. And I opened my mouth and I started speaking. We march today for jobs and freedom. But we have nothing to be proud of. But hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here. But they're receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. The time will come when we will not confine our march into Washington. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. We must say, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient. Two years later, in 1965, John led the first of three uh, Selma to Mon Montgomery marches across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. The infamous March 7th, 1965 march became known as Bloody Sunday. On that day, John Lewis led 600 civil rights marchers southeast out of Selma on the US um, Highway 80 toward the Ed Edmund Pettus Bridge. There was so much hope, so much optimism after the march on Washington. When people left, as Dr. King suggested, we went back home, back to the heart of the Deep South. So many of us went into the state of Mississippi. We went into Alabama. We went to Selma. In Selma, only 2.1% of African Americans were registered to vote. The only time you could even attempt to register to, to vote was the first and third Mondays of each month. You had to stand in line, get a copy of the so-called literacy test. And hundreds and thousands of people would fail the so-called literacy test. They were told they could not read or write well enough. 
African-American lawyers, doctors, teachers. So we started a series of demonstrations standing in line at the courthouse. One evening, there was a demonstration for the right to vote nearby Selma. A confrontation occurred, and a young man tried to protect his mother. He was shot in the stomach, and a few days later, he died at a local hospital in Selma. We made a decision to attempt to march from Selma to Montgomery, to dramatize to the nation and to the world that people of color wanted to register to vote. We start walking. I was one of the leaders of that effort. I was wearing a backpack before it became fashionable to wear backpacks. In this backpack, I had two books. I thought we were going to be arrested and that we were going to go to jail, so I wanted to have something to read in jail. I wanted to have something to eat in that backpack. I had an apple and I had an orange. Since I thought we were going to be arrested and go to jail, and I'd be in jail with my friends, my colleagues, and neighbors. I wanted to be able to brush my teeth. I had toothpaste and toothbrush. We get to the highest point on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Down below, we saw a sea of blue, Alabama State Troopers. And we continued to walk. We came within hearing distance of the State Troopers. And a man spoke up and said, I'm Major John Cloud of the Alabama State Troopers. This is an unlawful march. It would not be allowed to continue. I give you three minutes to disperse and return to your homes or to your church. And a young man walking beside me by the name of Jose William from Dr. King's organization said, Major, give us a moment to kneel and pray before we can pass word back for people to kneel and pray. The Major said, Troopers advance. And you saw these men putting on their gas masks. They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks, tramping us with horses, and releasing the tear gas. Was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. My legs went from under me. I thought I saw death. I thought I was going to die. I thought it was the last nonviolent protest for me. Stephen, the brutality of Bloody Sunday was broadcast around the world and horrified the world. And the marchers got the, getting the support of, of President Lyndon B. Johnson, who provided protection for other marches and introduced legislation that led to the passage of the Voting Rights, Act, Rights Bill in 1965. So you, know, you can't listen to that and not recognize the momentous occasion and the events that these these men are talking to understand why uh, Lewis and other civil rights leaders became uh, known mainly for these events. That's right. But of course, it didn't end there. Lewis dedicated his life to bringing about the beloved community. When he died in July, Dr. J. Marshall Shepard wrote an article about Lewis's environmental legacy. Shepard was a leading international expert on weather and climate, and his article has been widely shared and quoted. And he began by talking about the brutality Lewis endured, some of which we just heard him talk about. Shepard writes, and I quote, I awoke to the news that Congressman John Lewis died. He died at a time when people are actually complaining about, quote, unquote, violations of freedoms 
because experts recommend wearing face masks to protect their health. I cannot help but to juxtapose those complaints against a man who endured beatings and brutality for my right to simply live equally in this country. John Lewis stands firmly with some of the great Americans in history. However, I suspect many of you didn't learn about him in a K-12 U.S. history class. Much of African-American history has been truncated or omitted in the history books. I was compelled to use this platform to honor Congressman Lewis. Lewis tirelessly fought, bled, and sacrificed for civil rights, the downtrodden and those without a voice. He also understood the importance of the environment and climate change. Herein, I reflect on that part of his legacy. As I know, John Lewis may not be the first name that comes to mind when you think about the environment or climate change. However, his body of work suggests that he understood the significance of environmental issues and climate change. On his congressional website, he said, quote, humanity is the most important endangered species under threat from climate change, and yet we flood our ecology with poisons and pollution. The League of Conservation Voters documents his environmental voting record and gave him a lifetime score of 92%. Lewis has also been a longtime supporter of stronger funding for the Environmental Protection Agency and has advocated strengthening the Clean Water and Clean Air Acts. Shepard's not the only person reflecting on John Lewis's environmental legacy in the wake of, of his passing. Uh, an organization called EcoAction posted a video of Lewis speaking at what they called a toxic lotto. It was a grassroots environmental network that um, uh, organized this event at the Georgia State Capitol in 1994. And you'll hear echoes of what um, some of the advice that he has uh, to young people in the Shepherd article in this clip. A few years ago, you're so right, in the Congress, I introduced the Environmental Justice Act in the House, the chief sponsor. And when Vice President Gore was in the Senate, he was the chief sponsor in the United States Senate. This past January, I have reintroduced the Environmental Justice Act it's called the Environmental Justice Act of 1993, really. It was January 93. Hopefully, we're going to get some action on it. Senator Bacchus of Montana did it in the Senate. It is time for us to be more concerned about clean water than white water. people are suffering from toxic waste, from toxic dumps in this state, in the southeast, in low-income communities, all across this country, and we must do something about it. We must organize, we must mobilize, and send to the governor of the state of Georgia, to all of the elected officials, to all of the people who would like to be elected, to the county officials, 
do something about cleaning up these toxic waste sites, clean up the dump, stop bringing them into our neighborhoods, into our communities. One day, when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours, oh, one day. We are here uh, with a very special guest, uh, former Toronto Mayor David Miller and author of a brand new book called Solved, How the World's Great Cities Are Fixing the Climate Crisis. Uh, which I believe is available in bookstores now. Is that correct? Yes, it's available in bookstores now. Your local bookstores uh, like Book City or Ben McNally, Indigo, and of course online uh, in those big American chains because you have to be there. But please patronize your local bookstore. Yes, I actually just recently tried, I bought a, uh, ordered a book from Ben McNally. Uh, it's very nice. You just email them and then they mail you a book. It's, it's very, and they're very kind people. So... They're, they're lovely. <laughs> and when it, you know, if you feel comfortable at the moment taking the right precautions to go there, uh, they're wonderful people to see too. Yeah. Um, well, so obviously, um, you know, most of our listeners probably know you as our former mayor. Um, and, but even during that time, you were quite passionate in working on a significant set of climate change issues. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, what, how did that start? What was your introduction to climate change and how did you become passionate about it? Well, I think, first of all, I've always cared about the environment. It's sort of in my genes because I grew up in a small farming village in England at a time when everybody were environmentalists, although we didn't call it that. But, um, you know, people, the farms were farmed organically because people didn't want to spend the money on pesticides and other chemicals. Uh, people all had their own vegetable patches. Uh, the, uh, you know, chickens were free run uh, in terms of the, the way they were managed and laid their eggs. Um, we had a compost heap. You recycled everything because um, you didn't want to throw it out. It was a waste of money. So I, from my perspective, it's been one of my core values along with social justice since being a very young uh, boy. And, you know, as I learned more about climate change uh, as a lawyer and then city councillor, it became very clear to me that we have to act and it was also clear from a city perspective that city government had a very real role because of its responsibilities and because it's a government that really very much listens to, to the desires of its constituents. We had a role and an opportunity to take real leadership on climate change. So um, as a city councillor, but particularly as, as mayor, I tried to make sure we did our level best to, to really do what was required. Wow. So, so you started actually in a, like, it's quite a fascinating tale, even from beginning in a small town uh, in England and then running the largest city in Canada. Like even that is a particularly, you know, does that feature in the book at all? No, I don't. I did talk, I, uh, this is my second book, actually, my first book, Witness to a City, uh, which was about people I had met while I was mayor, whose stories are inspiring, but aren't well enough known or told. Um, the first the introduction to that is is about my background, but the solved is really about what great mayors are doing today um, to achieve progress on climate change. Um, not all of them have the same background as me, you know, moving from a little tiny farming village to being mayor of one of the greatest cities in the world has been a real privilege, but they all do have interesting stories. The, the book focuses more on their actions. Uh, but there's some real leaders who are true to their values. And I think that's an important part of not just being a mayor, 
but also of having the courage of your convictions when it comes to, to doing something like bringing in a strong climate plan. Um, if you're true to your values, that shines through and people really see it. And they're much more able to get behind your work and, and support it than if they think you're really doing something because you think it's politically necessary. Right, right. So, so what is it uh, about cities that you make that makes you think that they are you know so important and so ripe for climate leadership? Well, there's a whole range of things. I mean, first of all, that's where the greenhouse gases are emitted from. You know, the the world uh, in about 2008, 2009, um, somewhere around then, for the very first time, became an urban world. Before that, we were predominantly rural. And particularly because of the increase in megacities in China and India, we, we are, that trend is only increasing. So we're now an urban world. So that's very important to why cities matter. Secondly, about, give or take, about 70% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world are from cities or can be attributed to them. And what I mean by that is if you have a coal-fired power plant that's just outside the boundary of a city, but it's supplying the electricity, that's counted as being part of the city emissions. So it's where the people are, it's where the emissions are, it's where the bulk of the world's economy is. And equally more importantly, the powers of cities lend themselves to taking action on climate change. You know, they have environmental responsibilities like parks, urban forests, planting trees. Uh, they have social responsibilities, which matter a lot in addressing climate change. I'm sure we'll get into that uh, later, but they really matter, like housing. They have responsibilities over transportation. They have responsibilities over urban planning and therefore influence the quality of the buildings. They have responsibilities for managing waste. And, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, we brought in the Green Bin program in Toronto so people could separate wet waste, which is very important. Uh, for a whole bunch of environmental reasons, but including the fact it allows you to manage the methane that would otherwise be leaking from landfills, terrible greenhouse gas. And we did that, you know, 40 years or so after I lived in this little village where we all had our own compost heap and we're doing exactly the same thing. You know, good ideas have a way of coming around. Um, but that matters. And, and I guess the final thing is there's just a different ethos about cities. Um, you know, most places outside uh, China and India, again, have directly elected mayors or mayors that are head of a political party that, that wins. They have a different kind of connection with people, and they're expected by people to work with them, to listen to them, to engage them, and to actually act and get things done. Not to say we're going to do this or pass a policy, but achieve real results on the ground. So when you add all of that up, Cities are where people are, they're where greenhouse gas emissions are, and they have a form of government that's expected uh, to lead and to act and has responsibilities for very significant uh, areas that have a direct impact on climate change. You've got a perfect recipe for real and meaningful action. Right. And so, and so, and that's what this book is about, is my understanding, is all this type of real meaningful action. So yeah. I, I'm wondering if you can share a couple examples. Uh, to me, these are always the things that get my brain going. And when, when someone's sort of like, you know, it's possible because this has happening here, or this is happening here. I remember I read a book a while ago called The Happy City, which was filled with these types of examples. Uh, so yes, do you have any favorites? Or uh, may not pick and choose, but any, any ones on top of your head? I, I do, but is it okay if I give a bit more background 
first, but there's, there's one other really critical fact, and that is that 70% of global emissions that are in cities are really generated in four areas. So uh, how we heat and cool buildings, and that's a bit dry. You probably wouldn't run an election campaign if that is your central theme. We're going to heat and cool buildings more efficiently, but it's incredibly important. Um, you know, New York, it's well over 70% of its greenhouse gas emissions come from buildings. Toronto, I think it's about 40-something percent now. It used to be 60% because Toronto's done a good job over time in reducing. So how you heat and cool buildings, transportation, how you generate electricity, and how you manage your waste. And in each of those areas, somewhere in a city in the world, there is really significant action that is making the city a better place to live probably making it a more just and equitable place to live, and also dramatically reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And what the book talks about is um, if we took the best examples that are happening somewhere today in a technology that's available today uh, in a way that's affordable today, it's not about the next technologies, it's not about things that aren't affordable, real things, real actions that are happening. If we took those best ideas, and replicated them at scale, we could actually dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions and get us on the path we need, which is roughly having global emissions by 2030 to net zero by 2050. So that's, that's just sort of the, the preface. Some great examples for me, you know, transportation. Yeah. A great city works around a really excellent public transport system. And that's challenged at this moment when people are concerned about is it safe with COVID? Um, I think public transport systems are taking very good steps to ensure it's safe, but you have to have a great public transit system. How do you ensure then, first of all, you build transit if you don't have it, um, but secondly, you make sure it's run uh, on electricity and on clean electricity. So one of the things you can do is transform your bus fleet from diesel to electric. And Toronto's got 60 electric buses at the pilot program. That's great. And I'm very glad Toronto's doing it. They're testing to see if the capacity of the batteries in the winter is going to be up to scratch. Of course, you have to do that. But there's other examples. Shenzhen, China has 16,000 electric buses. All of its bus fleet are electric. And for that matter, all of its taxis are either electric or about to be electric. They've undertaken a, a massive transformation to move from a diesel and gasoline-based transportation system, collective transportation system, um, uh, to electric. And their electricity grid is nearly as clean as ours, but there's still significant reductions, local air quality is better, and so forth. And what else have they accomplished by doing that? They're basically now have the world's leading manufacturer of electric buses, a company in BYD, supplying some of the ones to, to Toronto, Toronto's pilot. Uh, in Shenzhen. So it's become an industrial strategy, a job strategy, as well as a significant greenhouse gas reduction strategy. And, and this idea is going global, partly because of the work of um, C40, where I work at the moment. Santiago, Chile, significant uh, uh, numbers of purchases. Los Angeles, California, and the county moving forward rapidly on electric buses. Very important there because of air quality issues, not just climate change. Um, so it's, it's one example uh, in, within that area of transport, much more to do in transportation, much more that's happening, but an example of a very concrete change 
electrifying the transportation system at scale and pace that is really important. You know, as part of the COVID recovery, I would argue that the federal government needs over the next couple of years to invest quite substantially in the operating costs of public transit to help bring it back. Because one of the ways you make it safe is have more service so there's less people on each bus. Um, and uh, if you did that in a way that said, okay, we'll do this, we'll pay for it because Ottawa is the only one that's able to marshal these resources right now. But the buses we're going to buy are going to be clean and green. You could do the same kind of thing that Shenzhen in China is doing in Canadian cities almost overnight and have a very rapid transformation. And it's a useful example because it shows how ideas can spread from city to city um, and how you can move rapidly. When we started talking about electric buses a few years ago, the manufacturers said that's a couple of decades off. Well, when a group of cities got together and said, you know what, we're going to mandate electric buses. What, do, what are you going to supply? Very quickly, we saw uh, leading manufacturers, particularly uh, BYD, but there's others. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's, what's interesting is that also it goes along with some of the other ways that you've seen transit being improved here in, in the city, specifically around private, around bus lanes too. You know, the, the, the expansion of the, the need for buses within uh, or the usefulness of buses within the transit system seems to be, uh, you know, given a the speed at which you can improve transit with uh, expanded bus services, uh, it compared to any other system does seem to be maybe even further in, make important the, the need for electricity buses. I, it, I think you've made a really good point. You know, um, you can, with reserved bus lanes or ideally busways like they have in Ottawa or Curitiba, Brazil, which is renowned for, for starting these under then Mayor uh, Lerner, who was uh, an amazing mayor, um, you can transport very significant numbers of people. You can do it in a clean way now with clean buses, and you can make that change rapidly. And, you know, we've seen in COVID cities uh, repurpose road space away from single family vehicles in favor of uh, walking, uh, cycling, and in some places, buses. Of course, you need subways where you have massive density all the way along the line, including both ends. Uh, light rail, which is, you know, at grade subways, sort of much faster streetcars with, with fewer stops. So you, you go further faster. Um, has a real place, and that has a real place in Toronto's inner suburbs like uh, Tobacco and Scarborough. And you need a network in our case, and you see the best cities doing this. But bus lanes and bus rapid transit also have a place, and it's relatively cheap, it's affordable, and the clean buses help uh, improve health outcomes because you have better air quality. So they, they really have a place. It's a very good example of change that can happen rapidly. But there's also examples in the other areas I mentioned, like buildings, how we generate electricity, uh, how we manage our waste. They all have solutions that are happening somewhere now that make a very real difference, that create jobs, often uh, benefit those uh, with lower incomes, and dramatically reduce greenhouse gases. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I sort of have a, a, two questions, which I'll ask maybe both, and you can sort of pick and choose. One is if you have any other examples of those, it'd be fascinating to hear. And the other is if you have any uh, further thoughts to expand on your previous statement about how uh, the response to COVID can be used to 
uh, you know, speed up some of these responses, um, you know, whether that's from the federal government uh, or just governments more generally, you know, how can we use this moment that so many people from civil society, at least, are calling on to be used as a, as a chance to recover and, you know, build back better or whatever hashtag you want to use um, to, to, you know, to embrace sustainability within our response. Build back better is a useful way to put it, and I'll come back to the examples because I, I think it's important. And I, I find people get more inspired about real examples and real change than a flowery speech. You know, we all like to hear great speakers, but it's real change that people need to see. And I, I think, you know, COVID has, has made people uh, want immediate action to address global crises. And there's some interesting research that I've recently seen uh, that suggests that people want COVID addressed at the same time as climate because they see that, you know, we're, we're all in this together. So at this moment, really what the mayors are saying is there will be massive investments to ensure that we economically recover from COVID. It's had unequal impacts. Those in certain kinds of jobs have had a very, very serious impact to their uh, financial success. Many have had very serious health impacts. Those investments need to be done in a way that's green and just. So from that perspective, if we ensure that those investments are doing the right thing from a climate perspective, this is a moment where we can ensure that we don't just recover economically and socially from COVID, we actually build um, what Bill Back Better is trying to say, build a society that's um, uh, much more likely to avoid dangerous climate change and much more likely to be just. We certainly don't want to you know, go back to the status quo because the status quo was taking us to three degrees or more of global heating. And you've got to keep it to 1.5 or there's going to be really serious fires, floods, droughts, starvation, tens of millions of people on the move, really serious problems. So they are inextricably linked and a, a green and just recovery from COVID is the right thing to do from a COVID perspective and is essential from climate because this massive investment will be unique over the next 18 months. There's not gonna be another one five years from now. This is the massive investment we're gonna see for the next decade or so. So from that perspective, you know, what are some good examples of where you might invest? Well, the federal government could show some leadership almost for free. There's a national building code. It's only a guide, but the federal government has a way of twisting arms. It could base it on Vancouver's building code, which essentially is saying you've got to build net zero carbon buildings by 2030. Um, and that's buildings that operate net zero carbon. That's uh, pretty ambitious, but it's possible. And there are all sorts of businesses and people and architects and engineers figuring out how to do this. Why is it only Vancouver? Why is it not, you know, Calgary, Toronto, Capiscasing? Well, part of it is the federal government needs to show leadership. And because its building code is, is only a guideline, it shouldn't be subject to the same kind of lobbying from the development industry uh, that provincial building codes are. And they should be able to say, this is the standard. Or you look at what New York City has done. And this really matters because a huge portion of emissions are from buildings that exist today. And New York City has mandated that they have large buildings uh, have to dramatically lower, where most of the emissions are, have to dramatically lower their emissions by 2030. 
And that's an example that can be taken globally as well. On electricity, we're in Ontario, we've got a pretty clean grid thanks to the efforts of the McGuinty government. You know, I'm critical of them in some areas like uh, canceling the Finch uh, LRT line in 2010, which still isn't built. You know, they said we'll postpone it for a year and it opened up uh, the plan to, to allow other lines to be constructed. And we still don't have transit for, for people who live in some of the lowest income neighborhoods in the city, still have rapid transit. But they did a good job on uh, clean air electricity grid. Quebec's is clean, uh, BC. Um, in many cities that have influence or, or own their utility, they're taking big steps. Austin, Texas is fascinating. Texas is the world capital of the oil industry. Austin, um, because of growth, needed to build a new power plant uh, about 12 years ago. And instead of doing that, they decided to subsidize people to use less energy by doing energy retrofits on their homes. Wildly successful, they didn't need to build the plant. More growth, they need, they're again pressured to have more electricity. Now they've got a massive solar program on the rooftops of single family homes. These kinds of innovations are a city-led response to greening a grid, which is possible in many, many places. Even where you don't have control over the grid, you can agree with the major other institutions like the universities, big businesses, that you're all going to pool your buying power and buy green electricity and force the utility to do it. And there's a lot that can be done about solid waste. And the, the good news for me is it isn't just these examples. There are cities that have pulled them all together and are making huge progress. Um, uh, a few years ago, C40, which is this organization of, of leading cities, um, think just think of the major cities of the world like Paris, London, uh, New York, Los Angeles, and, and Toronto, of course, um, agreed that its members to be a criteria of membership would be you have to have a plan uh, to help the world to do your share of helping the world keep to 1.5 degrees by 2030. So as of today, uh, or at least after the end of this year, over 60 of those 97 cities will have such a plan. It's called Deadline 2020. The plan requires you to peak emissions by the end of this year, half them by 2030, or do your share of having net zero by 2050. Um, uh, over 50 cities have already peaked emissions. And there are cities like Toronto that as a result of the plan we started when I was in office, which was renewed uh, in 2017. We started in 2007, renewed in 2017 and the closing of the Lakeview uh, coal-fired plant, Toronto is now 33% below its 1990 emissions. So it can be done. There's the individual programs that need to spread, and there's plans that have resulted in using those ideas and others, uh, particularly on energy retrofits and buildings, resulted in dramatic change. Um, what we need to see, of course, is far more cities and other governments following these same ideas and principles. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that leads me to my, my last question, which is you know, for anyone listening who lives in a small city or a big city, um, how can how can those in the cities, you know, or help to support this work? You know, I think as individuals, so often we can feel powerless. And you mentioned previously the, the uniqueness of cities and that, you know, individuals feel a little more ownership. But, uh, but yeah, how can how could anyone help? Well, I think a couple of things. These ideas are applicable to cities large and small. You know, Bridgewater, Nova Scotia started its first transit system, and it's been around uh, for as long as Toronto. It's a small town. Its transit system happens to be one bus, 
but it started a transit system that has a massive energy retrofit program for low-income people that's so successful the federal government gave it an award and some money. So, you know, you can do it large or small. If you think wherever you are, the issues are, how do we get fossil fuels out of transportation? How do we ensure our electricity grid is, is clean and small towns can do lots around solar and, and potentially wind and other things like geothermal? Um, how do we manage our waste so that methane doesn't escape to the air, which usually involves separating and, and composting uh, the wet waste? And particularly, how do we make sure our buildings are highly energy efficient? And that one should be easy because those the costs are paid back through savings. Take some time, but there is a savings, particularly if you own buildings for a long time like a government does. So how does somebody ensure that their local government is doing that? Well, I'd, I'd say three things. First of all, use your own actions. You know, make some changes in your life that are positive. I think we need collective action. I don't think this is a responsibility that individuals can do alone, but we can make a difference. So if you're in a city like Toronto, Choose to take transit, walk, or cycle whenever you can. My family and I sold our car a few years ago. Um, we use other means uh, to get around whenever we can. Um, so use your actions. Use your voice. Your voice actually matters. I've had numerous business leaders of businesses that are trying to do the right thing for the environment. When I've said, why are you doing that? They say, because in our hiring interviews, one of the first questions people ask us is, what are you doing about the environment? So people's voice has a tremendous impact, whether in that context or with friends and family. And the final thing, of course, is use your vote. You know, vote for politicians that act on environment, not just to talk about it, that act to make a difference. And there's a lot of, lot of those across this country, a lot of really good people who uh, understand these issues and with your support can make real change. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been uh, David Miller, the author of Solved, How the World's Great Cities Are Fixing the Climate Crisis, uh, also former mayor of Toronto and currently the director of international diplomacy with C40 Cities. Thanks so much.